And once you have that, you can turn to Acts 23. Typically, we go verse by verse through the Bible, believing all of it is necessary. That's what it says to equip us to do every every good work God has for us. And so we go through all of it. We're going through the book of Acts verse by verse. We haven't been doing this as of late for the last couple of months because we took a little detour during Christmas and and then our for uh, leading up to our week of prayer and fasting. But now we're back in the book of Acts. And as we get into this section or continue in this section that we, we last were in back in, I think, the end of November, I want to ask you a question. How many of you guys ever feel discouraged in life? Okay. If you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar, sinner. <laughs> Jesus paid for that. Um, every single one of us deals with discouragement quite often, right? This is a regular thing. And that discouragement doesn't go away just with being a Christian, right? Just with getting saved, you still are prone to discouragement, okay? The Bible actually talks a lot about that. Um, but we're all prone to this thing called discouragement. Discouragement can come in a lot because of a lot of different things in our lives, especially in ministry. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the, we have this thing called the good news to share with people, right? That's what saved us. That's what gospel means, good news. But... Does everyone receive it as good news? No. There's people that don't want to hear it for some reason or another, or they're just not receptive to it, you know, and sometimes that's an at first thing, and then as they listen, they, they, they receive it, and they believe it, and they understand it, but not everyone does that. It's all different times. And, and then sometimes also just in a practical way, our ministry for the Lord, the things that we know we should be doing for him, that he's called us to, you know, whether that's... Um, Formally, like in some ministry you're serving the Lord in, the kids ministry, sound ministry, whatever it is, or informally, like in the ministry we have to each other, to our spouses, to our friends, to our family, to our kids. We don't always see what we think we should see as a result of what we're doing, right? We don't see growth like we would, or we don't see people receive truth the way that we think they should. We Somebody's in sin and they're doing things to harm themselves and we share what is good news to help them not being sin and they don't listen or they get angry and that can be discouraging to us, right? So here's the thing. You're in good company because the apostle Paul, who we would all look at is like a, a, a figure of faith that we would strive to be or whatnot and who was used by God to do great things. He also struggled with discouragement as we're going to see in this chapter of Acts today. All right. And for good reason, if you've been following with us through the book of Acts, you know that his recent efforts to tell the people of Jerusalem, remember, this is his people, right? These are the Jewish people that he ministered to Judaism for a long time as like a Jewish religious leader before he got saved, before he converted to Christianity. And he wanted nothing more to come back to this place and tell his people, his closest friends and family of the truth of Jesus Christ so they could get saved and receive the same joy and peace that he had. And so when he gets back to do that, it's less than desirable results, right? Because up to this point, every time he gets to tell the people about Jesus, it ends with a riot with them trying to kill him. Okay, so he had reason to be discouraged at the things he could see that were happening as a result of his faithfulness to do what God had told him to do. And even though he was discouraged, we also see in today's text, that Jesus took the time to personally come 
to encourage him and basically to remind him that, hey, Paul, I know that it appears like things aren't going good, but don't let your circumstances or what you see going on interpret God's word, but rather let God's word or his promises to you actually interpret your circumstances, which is a good lesson for all of us because we all can do that same thing, right? And in our discouragement, it's at those times where often first we see God closest to us, but we also need to let him remind us of the promises he's given us in his word that matter whether we see them or not, because those are the actual reality you have as a part of his kingdom. Amen? And it, what gives us hope in this world where we face a whole lot of adversity, it's what allows us to be encouraged and have joy despite that adversity because God has said something and because he said it, it will actually come to pass. Amen? All right. So before I pray, just to give you a recap of where we were at when we left off, we had finished Acts chapter 22, started chapter 23, the first five verses, and uh, Paul preached at the temple, um, or basically he went to go to the temple and, and share Jesus with all the, the people that were there. And it ends in a riot where they try to kill him. And the Roman uh, guards uh, arrest him. Or they basically take him under custody. Because they, they see this great riot forming. And they try to protect him. Seeing he was about to be killed. And they want to figure out why the people were so mad at him. And so they bring him to the religious council. To basically allow them to question him. To try to get to the bottom of what's going on. And if you remember... Uh, he goes before the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish religious council, who also want to kill him for telling people about Jesus, despite being warned not to. And the high priest has him slapped, and he basically calls the high priest a hypocrite without knowing who the high priest was, because that was against the law to have an innocent man, uh, a hand laid upon his face. And when they make it known to him that, hey, how dare you talk to the high priest, he apologizes because that was also against the law to speak to somebody in authority like that in a negative way. And so he apologizes. And that's kind of where we're going to pick it up in verse six of chapter 23, Acts 23. So let me pray and then we'll start going through this. Dear Lord, again, we just want to um, we want to limit distractions. We can come in here thinking about a whole lot of things and then miss out on everything that you want to say to us that, as I prayed earlier, has the ability to change our life for the better. And so we don't want to miss out on that. We don't want to be thinking about what's for lunch or who's going to win the big game today or any of those things. They can all wait, Lord. What's most important is what you have to say to us. And so we want to listen as your Holy Spirit works through the teaching of your word and speaks things to us that we need to receive individually because only you know where each of us are at and what we're dealing with and and what it is you want us to hear from you today. So may we receive those things and be, as your word talks about, the good soil that the seeds fall upon and grow with deep roots and provide fruit in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting in verse 6. It says, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, this is the religious council he's in front of, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection 
nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So verse six says, Paul perceived his audience, or basically he's reading his audience and probably understanding that, all right, these guys aren't really going, they're not really up for listening to what I have to say about Jesus. And so he starts to change tactics. Basically, he pivots to trying to save himself from a council that wanted to kill him. And he does this by exploiting a known disagreement that he knows personally because he used to be part of this religious council. He used to be a Pharisee. And he knew that there was this disagreement that consisted amongst them, the Pharisees and Sadducees, basically the two different kind of religious leaders that made up this religious council. And he's basically trying to get somebody to be, one of the sides to be more sympathetic to him so that they don't try to kill him. And the Pharisees, which Paul was prior to converting to Christianity, basically, if you guys don't know this, they believed in more of a literal interpretation of the word of God, which was the Old Testament at the time. And hence, they understood the supernatural world to be real because the Bible talks about an afterlife or a resurrection from the dead, like where we go when we pass from this world. And they believe that to be true, which essentially is what Paul was being judged for because he was talking about the resurrection of who? Jesus, right? So as far as they're concerned, he kind of switches it around. I'm just talking about the resurrect, the afterlife, the resurrection of someone that was dead and, and they're alive now. And so um, he's trying to point that out to him. Now, the Sadducees, who were more liberal in their theology or their interpretation of God's word, looked at some of it as symbolic, specifically the afterlife. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe that anything happened after you're dead. You just died. All right. Hence, they had no hope in heaven and they were sad. You see. All right. You probably heard that a million times, but I'm going to play it till it till I'm dead. Anyways, but typically the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they didn't get along because of their division in theology. They were both just prideful and believed they were right. And so they didn't get along, but they did come together against Jesus and those that were his followers. And that's something you still see in the world today because Christianity, because what the Bible says is the one and only truth about God and the only way to know him through faith in his son, you'll see a whole lot of people come together in this world that have nothing in common other than that under the Satan's influence or the enemy's influence, they are against the truth and they'll come together to stand against it. That's exactly what's going on here. It goes on in verse nine. It says, then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So plan, Paul's plan works here. Basically playing off their pride and knowing that these guys cared more about being right than even prosecuting him. That's what happens. They, the Pharisees kind of, as far as they're concerned, they're like, well, if he's just talking about a resurrected spirit or he's like, we can agree with that. We, 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 we don't disagree with that. Whereas the Sadducees, they, they, are absolutely against that. That was unthinkable to them. And so what you see here is that all of a sudden they start bickering amongst each other and that that focus they had of prosecuting Paul becomes a secondary issue because they're more concerned with just being right. Now, this is the tactic Paul chose to took, 
But something that should be said is as we get to Acts 24, specifically verses 20 and 21, it appears he regrets this. Like maybe second guessing himself, thinking that, man, I wish I would have just spent a little more time telling him about Jesus. And that probably wasn't the right tactic to give up so soon. But nothing to say, his plan works. And it says in verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into his barracks. So basically this Roman commander sees that again at the result of Paul's words, a riot's about to form and they look like they're about to kill him. So he removes them and keeps them in his, keeps Paul in his custody in order to make sure he's safe. Then it goes on in verse 11, and this is key. We're going to spend most of the time on this verse. It says the following night, the Lord stood by him, this is Paul, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So even though Paul's life had been preserved, he saved himself, he surely wasn't feeling good about his efforts to share the gospel with his own people as both of those opportunities ended up not going well. Or less than ideal. And basically they ended in riots with people trying to kill him, right? Both with just the people and then the influential Jewish leaders who I'm sure he would have wanted to reach for Jesus so they could talk to other people about them. But they both ended poorly. And we know that he must have been discouraged in some way, maybe even feeling like, man, what's the point to go on? The Lord must just be done with me. Um, as at this point, there's a visible manifestation of the Lord or Jesus. And we know that this must be Jesus appearing to him because Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus, the son, is the visible image of God, the father. And he appears to Paul while he's imprisoned to be with him or as verse 11 says, stand by him and personally encourage him. The first thing he says to him is take courage. Some of your translations say, be of good cheer or be encouraged, Paul, because he had been a witness to him in Jerusalem. That's what it says. It says, you have testified to me, despite what you think, despite what you see, even though the results you think you're seeing are not desirable, you've been a witness to me. I'm using what you've done, your faithfulness, to produce fruit in these people's lives, whether you see it or not. That's what he tells them. And the second thing he tells them is that I'm not done with you yet. There's Rome in the future. I've got more for you to do. So don't be discouraged. Basically ministering to those in Rome, if you remember back in Acts 19, 21, was something that the Lord put on Paul's heart in, at a previous time. And so now he's reconfirming it to Paul. Yep. That was me, and I still got this work for you to do for me in the future. Which also meant, and this becomes important in the following verses, that it was not Paul's time to die yet. All right, This was going to be a, a word of prophecy for him, if you will, or a word for him to stand on that, hey, it's not my time to go yet. The Lord has work for me to do. And like Paul felt here, we too can become discouraged so often in our lives when we face adversity, but especially in ministry, when the very people that you are trying to reach with the good news don't receive it, okay? Or the very people that you're trying to minister to, to be faithful in what God's called you to. Like again, whether that's formal ministry 
or informal, like with your family or your neighbors. If you don't see growth, if you don't see fruit, if you don't see them reacting the way that you want them to or you think they should at, at the good things you're trying to tell them, you want good in their life and you're not seeing it, you can become discouraged. And that can lead to us having thoughts of like, what's the point in to keep trying? This person doesn't care. They're not going to ever believe in Jesus. Or what's the person, what's the point in investing and in, in keep teaching these things to my kids? Because they're still making mistakes. They're still little sinners. They're not perfect. It's like we, we can get these thoughts in our head. Maybe I should just quit. What's the point of doing anything for God? And they're all lies from our flesh or the enemy. And is at times like those that we need to remember the truth of what God has told us in his word the same stuff that he reminds Paul of here. And I'm going to give you four truths that we can always stand on when we become discouraged for any reason in life, whether it's ministry or just in life in general, because it's full of discouraging things. All right. First one, Jesus is always going to be with you. He's never going to give up on you. He is the most devoted person that you will ever, ever have in your life to you. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. This is before he ascended to go to be with the father after he resurrected. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. You know why that's important? Because if Jesus tells you something and he has all authority, he has the power to make sure it happens. Okay. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the whole entire world universe. Verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. So there's a twofold mission there. First, tell people the good news so they get saved. That's our mission. Never changes. There's a lot encompassed in that, but that's the overall goal. Share the good news that saved you with other people. And then what do we do after people are saved? We disciple them. We teach them God's word so they know how to live in that new life God intends for them, right? That's your mission to your kids, to your spouse, to your neighbors, to the people at your job, to other brothers and sisters in Christ. That is our mission, okay? Now, here's what he says at the end, though. And be sure of this. Why to be sure of this? Because he knew we doubt it or we when we became discouraged. But be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why does he say only to the end of the age? Because after the end of the age or after he comes back, you will be face to face with Jesus. And you don't need to be reminded of this. But right now, because we can't see him, but he's still there. We need to be reminded that he is with us and will never leave or forsake us. This is so important, guys. Nobody else in your life is devoted to you in that way. We want to be, especially as Christians, but we drop the ball. And as you guys have experienced, we've all experienced to some degree, somebody that should have been committed or devoted to us, but they let us down or they abandoned us. Sometimes that's in places like the workplace where you get fired when you were a good employee. Sometimes that's with friends that kind of just move away because they're going on with their life and you feel abandoned or you feel let, let down in some way because they were really close to you. Sometimes it's more serious things. It's your spouse that made a covenant to stay with you for life and they left you 
And maybe that's a word of the Lord to you. And you just need to be reminded that wasn't your fault. All right. Even if they blame it on your sin, guess what? They married you as a sinner and they were to be devoted to you and love you as a sinner till death do us part because that is the kind of devotion and love God has for you and would empower them to do so. Maybe it was your parent. My dad split when I was 10 and I never saw him again, but I found a better father that would never leave me, accepted me as I was, loved me too much to leave me that way, but is with me to the end until I see him face to face. That's the Lord with you in me. Amen. That's encouraging. And here's the thing. It's often at night as with Paul, as verse 11 says, or during our darkest moments, when we become most aware of Jesus being there with us. Why? Because he says in John eight twelve, he's the light of the world. If I lit a match in this room that's lit, partly lit, we're working on that. You'd hardly notice. But you light that match in the darkness of night, guess what? It shines brightly. And in my own life, when things are bright and they're going good, I often find myself caught up in those good things and I forget about my need to be relying on Jesus. And I don't see him because I'm not looking for him. Not because he's not there, but because in my fallacy, I think somehow I'm good without him. But here's the thing, when things are dark and when they're not going the way I would like, that's when I find myself looking to Jesus most intentionally, all right? And that's one of the reasons why he allows the hard things that we face in this world because he knows they will keep us looking to him where we'll be best off. Because what will happen is in those darkest times, he will be there to shine bright. He will be there when we need him in a way that no one else can be, all right? And that's the first thing we need to remember. He is always there. He is devoted. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Amen? Amen. Second thing, we also need to remember that nothing we do for the Lord is ever wasted. Not a single thing. If you're doing it with the right heart for God, doesn't matter how insufficient you feel, doesn't matter how you feel you dropped the ball or you didn't do something right, he will use it, okay? And again, this is something that can't be done without God. There's a whole lot of things in this world that we can strive for and put every bit of effort and work towards and be complete failures at, but not the stuff we do for God, okay? He is the one that gives us significance, eternal significance. Tells us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. so my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable, Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know, that's important. You need to know this, that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. It's never useless. Paul goes on to tell us in Galatians 6, 9 through 10. So let's not get tired of doing what is good or weary or become disencouraged or discouraged and not keep doing the things that God says is right. That's when it says it's the things that are good. It's what God says is good and right in his word. So let's not get tired of doing those because at just the right time. So timing's important because only God knows when that right time is. He's the one in control of it. But at the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing. If, if 
we don't give up. If we keep going, we're going to see blessing. That means happiness. We're going to see a harvest of it. It's going to result in something that makes us happy. Verse 10, therefore, because we know this, because we will see blessing, we will see fruit for our efforts. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. We should do good to everyone. We should do what God's word says to everyone we come and encounter with, especially those that are brothers and sisters in Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 6, 10 through 12, for God's not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers that you still do. Sometimes I feel like he's forgot, but that's why I need to read this and remind myself, no, God's not unjust. He's perfectly just. He will not forget. Verse 11, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. So what do we hope for? We hope for good things. We hope for fruit. We hope to see results for our efforts for God, right? And so what they're saying here is more than anything else, we hope that you keep serving God so that you'll get to see those things because eventually you will if you keep going. It says in verse 12, then if you continue to keep going, then you will not become spiritually dull or indifferent. Or the idea is complacent and lukewarm. If you keep serving God, that's what will keep your life with God exciting. It'll keep it from getting dull. And it goes on. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Man, that's right there. You want to see God keep his promises to you? You got to have faith. Basically, you got to believe that what he says is true to keep going and then endure. And then... You will see his promises eventually come to pass in your life. If you guys, how many of you guys were here when we went through Second Chronicles chapter 20, like three weeks ago, the week, week of prayer and fasting? You guys remember that? So if you guys don't, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. God's people faced with a huge army they can't beat, right? They're being led by Jehoshaphat. And so they go to God in prayer and fasting because they're like, we're a goner. We can't do anything. We don't even know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God gives them a promise. He says, don't worry about it. You're not even going to have to fight. I'm paraphrasing, but you're not going to have to fight. Just stand firm. Keep moving forward in faith. And I'm going to take care of him for you. And what do they do? They believe that in faith. They move forward with the worship team leading the army. Don't even have any weapons. They're praising God for the victory before they even see it. And as they're praising God, God is working behind the scenes, defeating their enemies so that when they come to him, they don't have to do anything. They're already defeated, right? So they received the promise of God through faith and endurance or faith and perseverance. And that's how we receive the promises of God in our life too. We can be confident that anything we do for the Lord will be used to further his kingdom based off his word. And how it usually works out in our lives is that God is behind the scenes doing things that you're not even going to be aware of until you get to heaven. I'm confident that we're going to get to heaven and there's going to be a whole lot of stuff that you thought was insignificant, that you amounted to nothing significant from an eternal value. And there, when you get there, you're going to see that, holy cow, I can't believe that the Lord did this from that. All I did was like ask if this person needed some help 
Or I just asked if they needed some help with their yard work. Or if I, I just reached out to them and said, hey, can I pray for you? Like you thought it was something minor, but God, to God, it meant the world. He used it to do a great thing. And I know this is true because actually it says, when Jesus gives a parable about this, saying this is what's going to happen in Matthew 25, 30, 34 through 40, when he's talking about him coming back and his second coming and, and basically um, talking to those that are righteous, that those have been found to be true believers of Jesus Christ in, the, in, in, in acknowledging the things they did in their life. It says here in Matthew 25, starting verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me and I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home and I was naked and you gave me nothing uh, or you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Now, here's the key thing, because this will be our response. Then these righteous ones will reply, reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked or give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. All those things you think don't matter, that you're not seeing results for, for, but you're doing with that right heart to God, they all matter. And one day you're going to see it, whether it's here or there. And here's the thing. You live as a Christian long enough, you're going to see this pattern in your life in that you're going to come to know after the fact of things that you said or things that you did that had a profound impact in people's lives or God used it and you had no idea at the time, all right? I get the privilege of teaching God's word and seeing this almost every week because I get down here every week, totally discouraging, discouraged, feeling like I bombed it, feeling I didn't say what I wanted to say. And yet somehow through that insufficiency, God is faithful to speak to people and tell them exactly what they hear. And what I've come to know is that the worst I feel it went, those are some of the most powerful times where God actually is speaking to people. So it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what I see. God is going to be faithful to use even our five loaves and two fish to feed thousands because that's who he is. He's great. And he gets to show his greatness through our weakness. Amen. All right. So again, this is something we need to remember. Everything you're doing for God is being used by him. It's significant for eternity. We need to be reminded of that. Third thing, we also have to remember that as long as we are on this earth, we still have roams in our life. Just like Paul did. Or the good things God planned for us to do for him long ago, as Ephesians 2.10 tells us. As long as you're here on this earth, God is not done with you. And he has he's the one that's given you significance. Because he said, everything you do for me matters. It's a part of my good, pleasing, and perfect plan for this, for you and for the other people in this world. So as long as you're here, he's got stuff for you to do. And you need not lose sight of that. Second Peter three, nine through 10, Peter tells us the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. This talking about him, him returning his second coming as some people think. No, he is being patient. <coughs> excuse me. For your sake, he does not want anyone to be destroyed 
but wants everyone to repent. Now, it's key that he says he's being patient for your sake regarding people being saved because what he's basically saying is that God has not come back because he has stuff for you to do for him that's going to amount to the people on this earth that still need to be saved, that need to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to happen. If there were no people left to be saved, guess what? We'd be with Jesus right now. But there are. And you're a part of that work. So for your sake, because he wants you to get to experience the excitement of that work, he is waiting to come back. In verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. It'll come one day, but not till God knows that everyone has placed their faith in him and used you to do every great thing that he intends for you to do as part of that work. Amen? So you're never insignificant. God is never done with you. I know what sometimes we wish, I'm ready to go to heaven. I'm ready for you to be done with me. No. All right? He's got work for you to do. There's people to be saved. Amen? All right, last but not least, and this is just a short one. Lastly, we have to remember that even if we can't see the good in our efforts to serve him, he is still working all things for our good and the good of his purposes. Amen? Romans 8, 28. That's that, what that verse tells us. That doesn't tell us that all things are good. That's, that's, that's a fallacy if somebody tells you that. Not all things are good in this world. God is really honest about that. But his promise is that he's going to work all things for the good of his people. So like Paul, even when nothing looks good, how can this be good, Lord? I'm telling them about Jesus and all they want to do is kill me. It's going to be good. Somehow or another, he's going to work it for good. And we got to stand on that despite what we can see. Okay, again, without Jesus in our life, we don't have that promise. When you think things are not good in the world, they aren't. Because this world is under the control of the enemy who is tempting people to sin. And all the bad things you see in this world are a result of sin or disobedience to what God says is good and right in his word. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. All right. But as a child of God, as a follower of God, you're not a part of this world anymore. You're going through it to take as many people as you can. But the ship is sinking. We're not saving the ship. We're saving the people off the ship before it sinks. And, and, and God has said that everything that you see, even the bad things, he is working for your good. And that is why you can be of good courage. That is why you can be of good cheer. Just like he tells Paul in verse 11, no matter what circumstances you're facing in life, here's the reality. You are correct. This world has given you every reason to be discouraged, but God has taken away every single one of those reasons, okay? Positive thinking is never a replacement for God, but rather it's the only proper response to God. All those books that say, hey, just think positive. Be positive. Be happy. They're malarkey. What is there to be happy about? Look at the world. It's just getting worse and worse because sin is getting worse and worse. There is nothing without God to be happy about and positive about. But with God, he's given us every reason to be positive, every reason to be thankful, every reason to be joyful. Amen. Amen. And we can be of good cheer. We need to remind ourselves for these reasons, we can be of good cheer. Going on in verse 12 says when it was day, 
The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So back at this time in history, in uh, Israel, there was a, a secretive group of Jewish assassins. Sometimes they were called dagger men because basically what they would do is they would um, kind of secretly walk around with daggers in their clothes. And whenever uh, like a Roman soldier or somebody that was a conspirator with the Romans because they were under Roman occupation and the Jewish people hated the Romans for that, um, they would walk by a Roman or a Roman guard or soldier or conspirator they basically just pull out their knife and stab them really quick. Just keep walking, all right? So it would appear that some sort of similar assassins were targeting Paul here, obviously devoted to their cause because basically they say, we're not gonna eat or drink anything until this gets done. And they come up with this plan. We're gonna go to the Sanhedrin. You're gonna go to the Roman commander. You're gonna say, hey, bring Paul back. We wanna ask him some more questions. And while that's happening, we're gonna go ahead and secretly assassinate him. We're gonna kill him. It says in verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of this ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. And he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And it says in verse 23, then he, the Roman commander, called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. This is 9 p.m. And also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Now, these assassins, being Jewish, thought that they were being zealous for God or basically devoted to God in their actions, all right? But the zealousness they had was misguided, or as Romans 10, 2 talks about, it was zealousness without the knowledge of God, or not in line with God's will. And because it wasn't in line, in line with God's will, and as secretive, secretive as they thought their plan was, nothing gets by God. He knows all things, right? And nothing can thwart his good, pleasing, and perfect plans for you in your life. And here's a great example of that, because despite what they wanted to do, this was not his plan for Paul, which he had already made known. It's not your time to die. You're going to get to Rome eventually, all right? That hadn't happened yet. So God intervenes and he protects Paul without Paul having to do anything, right? Without Paul even knowing and basically just letting his nephew be there to hear this plot that's happening divinely. I mean, that was God that orchestrated that. He comes to Paul. Paul sends him to the commander. The commander 
says, all right, we're going to send them at night by horseback. So nobody knows I'm going to send a small army of what? 470 people. I think that'll get the job done to make sure that he gets there safely. And guess what? Man, this is a brilliant idea. I'll just happen to send him to Caesarea, which was the Roman headquarters in Israel in a port city on the Mediterranean, which basically allows Paul to go to Rome, as we're going to see in the coming chapters, which just so happened to be the will of God in his life. It actually just so happened to be, too, where the Roshanes were at today. I was texting Josh this morning, and they were actually in Caesarea, where this all happened. Pretty cool, huh? So all that to say is, this is just a great example of where, from Paul's standpoint, or from what he could see happening in his life, there were reasons to be discouraged and feel like a failure. But with the Lord involved behind the scenes, that wasn't the case at all. And the Lord reminds him, Paul, 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 things are not falling apart. They're actually falling into place. You're doing exactly what I want you to be doing. You're exactly where I want you to be doing. So just keep doing it. Be encouraged. Be faithful. I've got everything under control. And as the worship team comes up, I want to just point out this this verse 11 where it says take courage. This is a Greek statement that's used. This is the translation of it. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. But there's a Greek statement here that is only, it consists of one word and it's only used five times in the New Testament. All by Jesus Christ. I want to read those for you, right? Because they all have a similarity. To the bedridden paralytic, Jesus said in Matthew 9, 2, be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. To the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, Jesus says in Matthew 9, 22, daughter, be encouraged, your faith has made you well. To his frightened disciples in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus said in Matthew 14, 27, don't be afraid, he said, take courage, I am here. To his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And then lastly, here, while facing adversity in ministry, Jesus tells Paul in Acts twenty three eleven, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You know what every single one of those instances have in common? Is that Jesus was there personally to meet those people in their time of despair and to encourage them personally to keep going. Paul learning from this experience here in Acts, among the many other tribulations that he had in his life serving the Lord, that when things seemed hardest for him, that is when the Lord would be closest to him. Or basically what David tells us in Psalm 34, 18, and that is the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. How many of you guys have come to find that out in your life? That when you're going through something hard, the Lord has a way of ministering to you where you just know that he is there and he is close. And that, you know, even if you don't know the final outcome, that 
he's giving you a peace that you can trust him in what's going on. How many of you guys have experienced that to some degree or another? I've experienced that over and over again. Again, this is one of those things, the longer you follow Jesus, you'll come to know this. One of the, the times that's fresh on my mind is just with our, our youngest child, Zeke, who's three. And many of you guys, you went through this with us, but there were some complications when he was born and he had to be born a month early. And I, you know, like this was, we, 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 it was unexpected. We went in to check to the hospital. My wife had super high blood pressure. They're like, we're going to have to deliver him right now. Here's all the what ifs that could happen. And I was just freaking out. And then the Lord reminded me, and this is like one of the audible times I heard his voice. I'm, I'm, I'm at home frantically trying to get clothes packed when my wife's at the hospital. And the Lord reminded me, he's like, I told you what to name him months ago. And unbeknownst to me, a couple of months before this happened, I'd woken up in the middle of the night and I felt strongly like the Lord put a name on my heart to give my son. And that was Ezekiel. And I didn't really know if that was the Lord. I didn't know why he'd want me to call him that. But at that moment in time, I remembered what the name meant and it was God strengthens. And so all of these things that they were telling me that could result of him being born a frail, little, weak, premature baby the Lord was ministering me at that moment and said, you don't have to worry. I already told you I'm going to strengthen him. And the rest of that couple of weeks when we went through that adversity of him being born, I had total peace. And when he was born, the Lord kept that promise because everything they said that he couldn't, he might not be able to do because of being born early, he was able to do. And he was actually, of all the babies, he was super small when he was born, but he just shot up on their scale and all our other kids were super small. He's like 70th, 80th percentile. And he's the one out of all my kids that maybe actually will be built to be a football player because he's still pretty <laughs> stocky right now. The rest of them have their mom's slender for frame and their soccer players and runners, which is totally cool. But all that to say is he's built like his dad. So, but the Lord came to me in that moment of despair to personally minister to me and encourage me. And this, this, Paul learning this letter, this this truth led to him writing this letter of encouragement to the Philippian church later on in his life while he's facing another trial. He's sitting in a Roman prison because he'd gotten to Rome and he's sitting in a prison awaiting a death sentence. And he writes this profound statement in Philippians 3, 10 through 11, where he says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So what Paul learned through going through these sufferings and in, 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 in God meeting him in that place of difficulty and ministering to him was first he learned that if he truly wanted to understand what Christ went through for him, he had to go through the hard things in life. Because here's the thing. Jesus went through all of those same hard things that we went through when he came and lived as a man on this earth. Now, I think we say that sometimes and we don't understand how profound it is that the God of the universe who's ruling on his throne and created everything by speaking into an existence in six days, humbled himself to come and live as a human being and go through all of the hard things that we go through, namely something that we didn't go through, but being beaten and tortured and whipped and ridiculed and hung on a cross to die, not for his sin, but for my sin and for your sin, so that 
that just price that was required of our sin could be paid for in full so we could be forgiven and made right with God. That's crazy. But when you go through hard things in your life, what it helps you understand is what Jesus went through, or I should say was willing to go through for you because of his great love for you. Because if you don't go through those hard things, I think it can be kind of a... uh, very hard to comprehend the depth and magnitude of God's love. We won't ever fully be able to comprehend it. But to some degree, every time you go through something hard and you get a better understanding of what Jesus went through for you, you get a greater capacity to understand how much God really loves you. And what that makes you is love God even more because you realize he truly does love you more than anyone else ever could in this life. Now, here's the second thing, all right? That's you share in his sufferings. But it also says in that passage I read in Philippians 3 that sharing in in his suffering allows you to experience the death of Jesus or the in 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 that might be kind of hard to understand but here here's what that means is when you go through hard things in your li- in your life they're not pointless they are before God comes into your life but now they're not because what he tells us in his word is that he uses those for your good he puts to death the parts of your, like the parts of you, the parts of your flesh, the part of your being that aren't good, that aren't of God, that are inhibiting you from experiencing the good things that he wants for you. So through your suffering, he's using that just like, for instance, like a precious metal like gold has to go through fire to burn away the impurities so it becomes even more precious and valuable. God allows us, he uses these trials, these hard things that feel like fire, that are burning up, they're uncomfortable to be in. He uses those things in your life to refine you and make you the precious jewel, the precious, precious metal that he intends you to be so you can experience every bit of blessing he intends for your life. So the suffering is no longer pointless. But you got to be willing to go through those hard things. And this helps us as a believer when we go through them to see them from this right perspective and understand what the point of them are, right? We got to remember, we got to ask God, what, what is it you're trying to teach me? What is it you're trying to refine in me? What is it you're trying to do to me? We need to remember, God is not going to protect you from anything in this life that is going to make you more like Jesus. Because that's the goal. Romans, where's the verse I'm thinking of? Romans, uh... Somebody help me. 829. Romans 829 tells us that we were predestined by God to be conformed to the image of his son. Basically, God chose you to be his so that he could change you to be like Jesus. That's the goal, to be more like Jesus. We see how beautiful Jesus is. We see how much he loves us. The more we get to know him from his word and experience him in our, in our lives, we want to be like Jesus. We want to decrease, as John says, John the Baptist, so he can increase. And God uses those hard things in our life to be a part of that process. So all that to say is, if you find yourself in a place of discouragement today, for whatever the reason, something hard going on in your life, ministry not going the way you thought. If you find your place in a place of discouragement, you need to be reminded just like Paul, the Lord would remind you today, be of good cheer. Be encouraged despite 
the hard things. Nobody's saying they're not hard. They are hard, what you're going through. But not because of those things, because of the promises God has given you as you go through those things. That first and foremost, he's right there with you. And because he's gone through everything you've gone through, here's the thing. Nobody can minister to you and encourage you better than he can. So embrace the fact that he is there with you to help you through it. Secondly, it's not being wasted. He's using it to better you so you can experience more of him and the good things he has for your life. Thirdly, nothing you're, none of it's being wasted. Nothing you're doing in your life is wasted. God is using it all for his good, pleasing, and perfect will in your life to accomplish that. And then also, God is not done yet. When we're with him, when he comes to get us or we go to be with him, we'll be like him. That's what the Bible says. But until we get there, it's a process. And he's working in us and through us. And that is something you can bank on, that you are significant, a significant part of his plan. Stand on those promises. Believe those. If you're having trouble believing in those, come up and get prayer with a brother and sister. If you're somebody that came here today and you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if this is all news to you, you haven't heard this, chances are you're, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You face that discouragement and you have not found anything that can alleviate it because there's nothing in this world that can alleviate it. Only Jesus can. And today he brought you here, not accidentally, just as he brought Paul's nephew into that place to overhear that conversation. Whether somebody invited you here or not, he brought you here today because he wanted you to hear the good news of the gospel or the hope that he's given you that you can have just like anyone else here that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. You can come here before God in this place. You can do it wherever you're at. But God's brought you here to do it today to basically acknowledge that, God, I'm not perfect. I get that I'm a sinner. I get that I do things that are wrong. I don't even know half the time that I'm doing these things. I need you to come into my life and forgive me of this sin, which he will do through the sacrifice his son Jesus made on the cross for you. And he will come into your life. He will put to death your flesh that you are slave to, that you can't help but do bad things or things that are not in line with his word that he says are good and right. And he will start to reveal to you the truth of his word and show you what is truly good for you and what is bad. And he will be with you the rest of your life to help you live in those good things. And when you do things that are wrong, he will gently correct you as a loving father and keep working on you until you're with the Lord and you are like the Lord. Amen? But you could have the same hope today. You don't have to leave this place hopeless. It's a free gift God offers to everyone. And we're going to have our prayer team around the room. If you need prayer for anything having to do with those things I was talking about or anything else, come up and get prayer. Maybe you came with somebody and they're sitting next to you and you don't want to come up and get prayer from somebody that you don't understand or you don't know. Talk to them. Ask them what questions you have. They're there. They've been placed in your life by God to be that connection so you, they can share with you the same hope that we have. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord God, as we just take this time, we don't want to leave here and not respond to this, to your word. As I said, Lord, we're not here by accident. We're not here just to, to read a book. This is the living word of God that has the words of life that give eternal life and 
leads us into living in a way where we can experience the true life that you want for us, a blessed life, a happy life, with a happiness that can't be taken away by our circumstances because it's found in you and your promises that you always keep. And Lord, if we're feeling discouraged today, we know that's not of you. We know that you have given us every reason to be encouraged, even despite hard things that we're going through, which you were honest about that we would go through. But you said we could still take courage or be of good cheer. And Lord, I believe fully that that you're reminding of, of us of that today and giving us reminding us of the reasons why we have to be encouraged. And that your heart is not for us to leave discouraged but encourage, just as you came to Paul to encourage him. So I pray that would happen in this time right now. In Jesus' name, amen.